Hi, I'm D.W. from Houston. I'm Kate Urquhart from Minneapolis. I'm Jamie from New York City. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is produced independently and supported by listeners like you and me. You should support the show like I did. It's easy. Just visit MaximumFun.org slash donate. I'm Jesse Thorne. And I'm Julie Klausner, co-hosting this week. I'm going to talk to singer-songwriter Nellie Mackay about how no one can hold a candle to Doris Day. Oh, I like the old stuff. You know, I think... uh, I think there there was an innocence there, and um, p- perhaps a sweetness in in contrast to the hardness of living. It's bullseye. This week, I'll talk to Rob Delaney, one of the funniest guys on Twitter with over half a million followers. In fact, it's possible that he prefers the virtual world to the corporeal one because. He is very uncomfortable with the human body. And our bodies are so disastrous. I mean, there's like 20 things I could go look at my body in the bathroom and be like, oh, God. And I'll talk to Nellie Mackay, who couldn't hate the Internet more. Oh, the Internet. Oh, it's the devil box. I mean, we're all reliant on it, but I'll sacrifice friendship to stay away from that thing. All that and more this week on Bullseye. Let's go. Every week on Bullseye, we invite culture critics to pick out some stuff that is worth our time. Jesse, who are you talking with this week? Uh, This week, I am chatting with Andrew Nas, our friend, the hip-hop blogger behind Cocaine Blunts. He also has a new column on Pitchfork Media. Hey, Andrew, how's it going? How's it going, Jesse? Oh, it's great. Great to have you back on the show, as always. Um, Let's talk about Future. Uh, Future is a, well, I was going to say a rapper. He's sort of a rapper, sort of a singer. As autotune has come closer and closer to the mainstream and almost become de rigueur, the ways that melody can be imposed upon rapping have sort of blurred the line between rapper and singer, especially for Future. Yeah, I was actually kind of hesitant about putting this song on here because it probably isn't a rap song at all. I mean, he kind of rhymes a little on the opening bars, but it's more of a spoken word thing. And then it just goes into a full-on ballad. But, you know, Future is definitely a rapper, and this is his big record at the moment. And it's kind of amazing. It's a really beautiful song. It's called Turn On The Lights. Get used to chatter. I wanna tell the world about you just so they can get jealous. And if you see a foe, I do tell I wish that I met her. Turn on the lights. I'm looking forward to her. I heard she keep her promises, they never turn on you. I heard she ain't gon' cheat and she gon' never make no move. I heard she be the anytime you need her, she gon' do. Let's talk about Gunplay now. He has this record called Bible on the Dash. Now, Gunplay is part of Rick Ross's crew. Tell me a little bit about Gunplay's background. Well, I guess we don't really know much about his background. He was kind of a role player in Rick Ross's camp using the group Triple C's, and nobody really started noticing him until the past year or two, I guess. He just kind of emerged, and I think he's probably one of if not the best rappers of the moment i mean there's just this energy to his music that is really lacking in a lot of other rap right now 
rush. M-O-B and that's a must. C-O-D, I got no trust. And I be being meth and a million won't last a month. All I need is one. PNC and that's enough. And I ain't even crank up yet. But bet I'm gassing up. When my product press that pedal, if you bet to fasten up. I exhale and ask the blunt. They got a hundred times. Not even hundred one. Couldn't bring back how it was when a brick was 17 and you ain't had to I'm getting a little too power drunk. Now I'm on that bullshit. And I got a problem and a plan. Revolver in my hand. Trying to keep it cold. But y'all won't understand. That's why I roll. That's why I roll with the Bible wanna dance. That's why I roll. That's why I roll with the Bible wanna dance. Before we record these segments, usually talk briefly to my producer, Julia, and... In the notes that you gave to Julia, or perhaps Julia took from talking with you, is this is written way better than you'd expect anybody on drugs to be writing. <laughs> yeah, um, that's definitely true. I think that's kind of, I don't know if it's shtick or if it's reality, but, but I, in either way, it seems to be working for him right now because he kind of has this super animated, high energy approach he actually has a line on this song that i think is hilarious where he says when rapping was an art now it's a drug you know people always complain about how rap is like the art form of rap is dying but i think this is kind of an insightful thing to say because rap is changing the way people make it and you know being in the studio with these guys is true it's not so much about constructing something it's just like this compulsive instinctive like they just keep making music and making tons of music and rapping until they can't anymore so i don't know i think i guess the parallel of the metaphorical drug and the actual drug are working it's working out for him well andrew nas from cocaine blunts recommends gun plays bible on the dash says drugs are working for him. <laughs> That's a public radio message for you. <laughs> and futures turn on the lights. Andrew, thanks as always. Thanks so much, Jesse. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. And I'm Julie Klausner. So, Julie, you're about to uh, play this interview that you did with Nellie Mackay, who is great. She's been on our show a couple of times. The thing about Nellie is that, on the one hand, she is a real modern lady in many ways. She's very funny. But there's also this element to her that feels like it is at home in maybe 1946. She has pin curls and has this very wild way of talking that I think is very sincere. She's enchanting, but she doesn't seem affected. Mm -hmm. I think that that's really who she is. And yes, despite her optimism, there is something sardonic there. I love that just after Nora Jones broke through with her album Come Away With Me, Nellie put out a different record called Get Away From Me. (laughs) And Nellie's kept busy recently recording a tribute album to Doris Day, creating two cabaret shows, and she co-produced an album of original songs with her mom called Home Sweet Mobile Home. Here's Bluebird. Bluebird Bring back my happiness And see me through This clouded hour Bluebird 
carry me to a field in flower. Nellie, welcome back to Bullseye. Oh, thank you for having me, Julie. So, Nellie, tell me a bit about your working relationship with your mom. Um, she's co-produced some of your albums. She's your manager. What does she bring to your work that a stranger couldn't? And how has your relationship changed working together? Oh. <laughs> well, they say the first 40 years of parenting are the hardest. <laughs> so <laughs> I am. Oh, everything's just going to sound over-earnest, and uh, and she hates that. But uh, you know, she's just uh, she's just very um, perceptive. She has a slant on things. And um, I, I remember when I, I was a kid, I read a book about Shirley Chisholm. And I remember uh, her husband... Uh, he he said that he made sure she got to bed on time, and that you know that that she was eating the right things. And I always think, oh, where can I find me a husband like this? <laughs> <laughs> this is great. <laughs> um, so I, I have, but you know, when I, I I work with my mother, she she cares about the work, and and she cares about like, the both of us. That's rare. Your own original music has influences from many different genres and decades and styles. Was music always just music to you, or did music from any particular time or place have a particular appeal? Oh, uh, oh, I like the old stuff. You know, I think uh, I think there, there was an innocence there, and um, p- perhaps a sweetness in in contrast to the hardness of living you know it was so easy to have such a hard life back then whereas now we have all these modern conveniences it's kind of leveled everything out and we're all very cynical do you use any i I have a hard time picturing you with a remote control in your hand or with an ipod do you use modern conveniences oh well never a remote (laughs) i have to get my kicks where i find them um i guess uh uh, no i can't use an ipod i I mean i just feel like such a jerk (laughs) I can't picture like beneath those those blonde curls earbuds. It just doesn't make sense to oh, me. Oh, oh, it's awful. I used to have a, a discman, and one time I was persuaded to buy these white uh, earbuds, you know. And and then everyone thought that I had an iPod in my bag, and I, what? And so then I had to carry the discman around. See, see, I'm not like that. What do you do that's modern? Do you think? Oh, modern. What do I do? Do you check the internet? Oh, the inter- oh, it's the devil box. It's, it's, it's just awful. I mean, you have to. I mean, we're all reliant on it, but I do everything I can to put people off. <laughs> I'll sacrifice friendship to stay away from that thing. Let me talk a little bit with you about Doris Day. You first encountered Doris Day, you've said, when you bought a record of hers on a whim in high school. Doris Day is often written off from being wholesome, dated, maybe even a little bland. You seem to recognize her as someone who can be bright and beautiful and optimistic and still be a person of great substance and relevance. Let's try again, sigh again, fly again to heaven. Who is Doris Day to you and what impression has she had on your life? Well, I, I guess, you know, the idea of putting a, an optimistic face on things, because she had a very rough life, and, um, you know, it can 
the you know the person who smiles is often tougher than the person who doesn't, and that can be a bad thing too. Um, you know, for instance, the the con men who swindled the uh, backwoods types in, yes. in 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 Kentucky and all that. You know, uh, they came with smiles, and the country mask was one of seriousness, and the smile won. But then you know, you look around New York, and everyone has attitude, and it does make you <laughs> yearn for a friendly face. So Nellie. You have a ukulele with you, and I wondered if you could sing us a few songs. Oh, I'd love to. If time runs like a river I saw my people bathed in blood And if the faithful I'll have to leave all I have loved Adios, my hypocrite heathen Adios, oh, false dynamite Adios, oh, rinky-tinky-dum I'm Julie Klausner. That was the song Adios, performed by my guest Nellie Mackay. She's a singer-songwriter who recently took her passion for environmentalism and her unique cabaret sensibilities to create a musical about the activist Rachel Carson. The show is called Silent Spring, after Carson's 1962 book Exposing the Dangers of Pesticides. When it came to developing Silent Spring, I wondered, in terms of process, how you went about choosing other songs and composing original ones. Oh, yes. Well, I'd, I'd always had a vision of Rachel Carson rapping. So that part came quite easily. And uh, we had a tagline, a lighthearted look at pesticide poisoning. So uh, once those two areas were in place, um, I, I guess, uh, you know, uh, certain certain songs actually do have references to it, like, uh, say, Lazy Bones, which we put in the song, um when taters need spraying. I mean, they actually have a, a spraying reference in them. Or, um, uh, I'm trying to think. Oh, yeah, there was one song about uh, being a bureaucrat because that was a huge part of her life. She was one of those 
meddlesome government bureaucrats. And um, there was so much to deal with both in terms of the time period and in terms of, uh, you know, the private battles she faced um, and in terms of the, the opposition that she faced. There was a, there was a lot to uh, include and uh, so I think we've just got the tip of the iceberg. So sort of when you didn't have the songs that had already been composed, you kind of wrote the ones that you needed a bit or? Uh, yes. And, and but, but, but again, I mean, say a song like Early Autumn, well, that's, it's, it's kind of akin to a silent spring. And then Michael Feinstein actually sent me a song called Silent Spring. Well, Did I, oh, we have too many depressing ballads in the show already. <laughs> but maybe eventually, yeah, we can. Uh, we can. But, but uh, yeah, we have an Irving Berlin song, What'll I Do? Um, but um, it's it just just trying to uh, reflect each stage of of, of her life, and, and she was really, she was a very she was a strong person. I mean, she was a a little lady, but she was she was very strong, and she was very independent in a time when that was even rarer than it is today. And so we have a song called "Alone Again," uh, which just talks about why solitude and um, and and listening to one's own inner voice. Uh, well, we also have a song called Listen Here by Dave Frischberg. Um, why why that can be preferable to groupthink, this this constant uh, uh, prizing of, of being sociable all the time. It can be better to be an introvert. Let's hear another song from my guest, Nellie Mackay. This is Meditation from her tribute album to Doris Day. When you're gone and I'm all by myself And I need your caress I just think of you And the thought of you holding me near Makes my loneliness soon disappear is a singer-songwriter, activist, and cabaret artist who performs regularly in New York and around the country. She's heading out on tour with her ukulele and a piano this fall. You can find those tour dates at NellieMackay.com. After a break, I'll talk with comedian Rob Delaney about his distaste for the human form. 
and our bodies are so disastrous. I mean, there's like I, 20 things I could go look, look at my body in the bathroom and be like, oh, God. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and PRI Public Radio International. Bullseye is supported in part by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered online at ask.metafilter.com. MaximumFun.org is proud to support the San Francisco Comedy and Burrito Festival, a weekend of comedy and burritos, October 11th through 13th, featuring stand-up comedy and live tapings of Jordan Jesse Go and International Waters. More information and tickets are available at sfcomedyandburritofestival.com. If you've got burning opinions about Bullseye, come discuss them with other fans on our forum at forum.maximumfun.org. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. And I'm Julie Klausner. Julie, can I ask you a question? I wish you would. (laughs) Do you like to know what's hot? More than anything. And do you need help avoiding what is not? Every day. Well, our correspondent Jordan Morris is here to help you out. Stick to his list of ranked things, and you'll climb your way to the top in no time. It's Jordan Ranks America. Barely making the list at number five, it's the crane game at the arcade. Sure, your chances of winning a stuffed Sonic the Hedgehog are fairly low, but for 30 glorious seconds, you can pretend you're behind the wheel of a mighty steam shovel. Toot toot! Holding fast at number four, it's the presidential election. No matter who comes out on top, one thing's for sure. When the polls close on election day, the USA is going to partay. At number three, it's paper towels. I know it's not environmentally sound, but when I'm eating a sandwich and don't want to dirty a plate, I throw my ham and cheese down on one of these thin softies. Eyeing the top spot at number two, it's squeezable jelly. If you try and squeeze a jelly jar, you're going to end up with a handful of glass and jelly on the floor. Choose squeezable jelly and prevent accidents. Hanging on to the top spot at number one, it's Dad's Golf Buddy. Once you get past the fact that he can get a little handsy after he's had a few G&Ts, you'll find Dad's Golf Buddy to be a real heck of a guy. From the bottom to the top, I'm Jordan Morris. Jordan Morris co-hosts the program Jordan Jesse Go with me every week. Find it at MaximumFun.org and you can subscribe for free in iTunes. You can also follow Jordan on Twitter at Jordan underscore Morris. It's Bullseye. I'm Julie Klausner. And I'm Jesse Thorne. Jesse, I'm really excited about this next interview. You're about to talk to the comedian Rob Delaney. He's one of the most popular tweeters on Twitter. He's got something like half a million followers. He does indeed more than half a million followers. And I like to think of him as the first sort of comedy superstar of the social media age. But then I remembered that I guess 
Dane Cook was already that. So at least Rob is the first entertainment superstar to be born specifically of social media, if that makes sense. Delaney's in his mid-30s. He's been doing stand-up since his mid-20s, but his rise to fame was fueled primarily through his Twitter account. Yeah, but first and foremost, he's a stand-up, right? Yeah, and and he has his first ever stand-up comedy special about to come out. He produced it himself. He's selling it on his website. Basically, he's a really amazing story, and I have not even touched upon the fact that 10 years ago, he was in jail with two broken arms, immobile legs, and a debilitating alcohol addiction. But anyway, I'll, I'll talk to him about that. For now, here's a clip from his special. As you'll hear, Rob Delaney is a relatively new dad with some strong feelings about his baby boy. I don't know if any of you guys have kids, but they, oh, they can off because my baby is better. At, I, all I do literally is sniff him. I just hold him and I'm like... Mm. Like, I'm going to sniff all the nutrients out of him and make him stupid. His first words are going to be like, stop! Well, you make me. Um, he has like little nubbins on his head from my nostrils just sucking his scalp off. Um, but yeah, they smell better than cocaine. It is amazing. Rob Delaney, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. A pleasure to be here. Thank you. Rob, this is... I have watched a lot of comedy specials in my time, um, both as a comedy enthusiast and as the host of a culture and arts radio program that Mm -hmm. substantially focuses on comedy. This is maybe the most vulgar I've ever seen. (laughs) (laughs) It is just so, the vulgarity is so pervasive. It really is. It is. It seems Uh, like part of what you're doing and I'm projecting this onto you, so you can tell me if this is crazy or not. But it feels like part of what you're doing is making the most horrible slash vulgar slash disgusting slash nightmarish subjects mm-hmm. imaginable into something fun. Like, that's the challenge you've set for mm-hmm. yourself. It is. It truly is. I think that good stand-up has to have alchemy in it. And also, this is my first stand-up special ever, right? I'd like to do many more. And I kind of feel like I had to... Even the stuff that I'm doing now goes to, like, deeper levels than this one that just came out. And I sort of feel like I had to really scrape the scum off. I had to – I didn't want to censor myself at all because I was like, if I – you know, like I just saw Bill Cosby a few months ago. He's 72. I'm 35, right? So I just wanted to sort of position myself to where if I had a thought, say it. Get it out. Do not ever (laughs) – you know, you don't have to. If it's not funny, of course, dump it. But don't be afraid to go to the to the darkest areas and stuff to to see where you can find the light in there. You know, <laughs> so that was sort of the was the challenge to myself. So much of your humor in this special is about the body. It absolutely is. It really is. Yeah, it's about classic comedy stuff like it, various physical evacuations Uh that aren't appropriate to talk about on a public radio show. But it's just about, you know, just corporeal being. Yeah. And our failings, you know, what's gross and fat and wrong. Yes. 
Yeah, the body is a wonderful uh, laboratory uh, to learn about the mind. I mean, they're so interconnected, you know, and our bodies are so disastrous. I mean, they're just rotting. I mean, it's like flesh falling off the bone. I mean, there's like I, 20 things I could go look at my body in the bathroom and be like, oh, God. <laughs> and, I, yeah, and, like, since I do feel that I'm, like, at the beginning of a comedy career, I mean, start with what you got, you know. I know more about the guts contained in this outfit that I'm wearing right now than I do about anything else so you know sort of map that first and then uh and then move outward from there it seems like part of your fascination with the body at least from my perspective maybe comes from the fact that you have been through so much physically yeah, you know, I was very abjectly humiliated in the car accident that I was in ten and a half years ago. I was in jail, not far from where we're recording this in downtown L.A., in a wheelchair. Uh, my arms were both broken terribly, and my legs were, were badly damaged. They'd been cut open to the bone. So I was in these leg stabilizer things that didn't allow me to bend my knees. So when they would wheel me around in jail, I couldn't control my body. I couldn't hold on to the wheelchair with my arms. I couldn't prevent myself from slipping out of it by bending my knees. So I would fall out of it. And a bloody hospital gown that was covered in blood from my face, which had been customized by my car's dashboard, uh, would come up and would expose my private parts to everybody in jail, you know, which is, you know, jail in in popular culture is uh, appropriately painted as a scary place where you should keep your private parts to yourself, you know. You got in this car accident. It was a solo car accident. Thank goodness, yes. It was just me. I, Me in a building and no other people, uh, for which I am eternally grateful. And um, I think, as I understand it, you were in a blackout drunk at the time. I, that is correct. Yeah, I, uh, I drank into a blackout, uh, not infrequently, but yeah, the blackouts would happen uh, with increasing frequency the more I drank more regularly. And so I'd wanted to quit for some time and had tried with varying periods of, of not being drunk. And then this accident happened. Yeah, I, I drank into a blackout, fell asleep on a friend's floor during the blackout. Like I was like, hey, good night, guys, and just slept on my friend's floor. But then still in the blackout, I, you know, quote, woke up and then went for a drive and drove into the L.A. Department of Water and Power, uh, one of their branch offices, and uh, got hurt the way that I described a moment ago. I, I was listening to you uh, talking about this on our, I think, our mutual friend Paul Gilmartin's show. Yes. Um, and you described that the first sign that you had that you had a drinking problem was being drunk in class in high school mm-hmm. and getting, I think it was suspended. Uh, yeah, that. yeah, that's right. My sophomore year of high school. I, I guess, you know, part of me is, I don't mean to sound flip about like a really serious thing, but mm-hmm. part of me is surprised that you were in class. <laughs> yeah. Why did I go to class? I know. Well, the, as a matter of fact, and this is illustrative of, uh, I think, I'm going to be comfortable calling it alcoholism, is uh, I hadn't drank that day. I was still drunk from the night before, and uh, but enough to not pass a breathalyzer test that the vice principal gave me. I mean, what was what was out of balance for you that... Uh, I... I don't know, you know, and of course I've thought about it a lot, and uh, I prefer to sort of take a kind of blue-collar, one-foot-in-front-of-the-other pragmatic approach to it. 
I don't necessarily know why I drank the way that I did, but I've discovered, you know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that I can't. If I do, it'll definitely kill me. And what with the driving, it could kill other people. And that is unacceptable uh, to me. And and when I discovered that it could uh, kill other people, that's when I put the plug in the jug, so to speak. And I know I had a curiosity about it. I remember being an adolescent, being like in fifth grade and a cop bringing in a big bucket of drugs like a display case and showing like this I is remember that, that and this is what it'll do to you and i wasn't scared i was like oh my god i can't wait to do that meanwhile i'm like getting a's on book reports and you know have two paper routes and stuff and uh go to church you know but i was like drugs wow like i can't wait and then i was able to procure all those things and uh, i thought they were just great until I didn't, you know, yeah, I'm okay with the word alcoholism because it kind of felt like a chemical equation being finished. I would just be hanging out, me being uncomfortable and then add a little booze. And I was like, oh, here we are. You know, it was like a chemical signature being finished. I was just like, oh, here, here's me, you know, and I was a lot happier that way. Um, that seems like, that sounds like the same kind of thing that a lot of comedians answer by doing comedy. Totally. And it's funny now because I just realized that this listening to you talk now, how I said it felt like a chemical equation being completed. And now a metaphor that I've been using a lot when people ask me, you know, because still, even though I've been doing it for a while, people will be like, why do you do? I could never. You get on a stage. Yeah, they're all looking at you. And I hear that. It totally makes sense on paper. Why would anyone do stand up? But what I say to those people is like, honestly, when I get on stage, it feels like getting into a hot tub. After a break, more with Rob Delaney. And are you looking to be a happier, better, more groovy person? I'll share the secret. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and PRI, Public Radio International. October 15th is Max Fun Day. It's a one-day, all-out barrage to get new donors to MaximumFun.org. We've got new shows. They need your support. And if you've been listening to the old shows and you're not a supporter, well, then October 15th is the day to change all that. Join us on the Internet October 15th for Max Fun Day. Every new donor towards our goal of 1,000 who becomes a member at the $10 a month or higher level will help us give 20 meals to families in need through the Los Angeles Regional Food Bank. So, hashtag MaxFunday. Help us out on Facebook, whether you're an existing donor or haven't been yet. October 15th is the biggest day in MaxFun history. MaxFunday. Mark your calendars. Have a favorite bullseye segment? It's easy to share it with your friends. You can find links to our page on SoundCloud at MaximumFun.org. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the comedian Rob Delaney. He won the Comedy Award for Funniest Person on Twitter, and he has a new stand-up special called Live at the Bowery Ballroom. Here's a clip from that special offering one of Delaney's specialties, a distressingly dark take on a relatively happy topic. I on my first day of nursery school, I went in uh, at the Jewish Community Center, and uh, Miss Shelley, our teacher, played a ukulele and gathered the, the kids and one parent each. And as she sang, where is Robbie? Where is Robbie? And I stood up and said, here I am. Here I am. It was nice. And they said, very nice to meet you. Very nice to meet you. Please sit down. And I did. And, uh, <laughs> and the heavens opened. It was amazing. And but then, then she sang, where is Andrew? Where is Andrew? And I stood up again, and I go, Andrew's dead. 
And I did that because my grandparents' dog, Andrew, had died the week before. And I didn't know that there was, like, more than one Andrew. I don't think that there should be, but there are. And uh, the little boy was like, Dad had to go and hug him. He got on heroin when he was, like, four. He died. Um... One of the things about comedy, and especially stand-up comedy, relative to another thing that you might do, or that someone who has some issues might do, you know, mm-hmm. some Ernest Hemingway writes a novel, is that when you're on stage and you say something that works, or even if you're mm-hmm. in a social situation mm-hmm. and you say something that works, you know that it worked yeah. because there's a, there's a f- direct feedback. Right. Like I just turned in the first draft of a book to a publisher that I'm writing. And it was very it – was, it was terribly painful and lonely to write because I like to go on stage, tell a joke, and have people immediately say, hey, that was terrific, or here's a gun, pull the trigger in your mouth, you <laughs> – Excuse me for saying that word, but uh, you know, you know right away, and I'm definitely addicted to that. So yeah, writing a book was just like I don't know. I would have it would have been easier if somebody had come in and read a page and been like, "This is garbage." I would have been like, "Oh, thank you." So I think yeah, a, a need to sort of have immediate feedback, good or bad, but have a sensation thrown back at you. I mean, I don't know, like spiritual sonar where people are like, your thing worked, it didn't work, turn right, turn left, adapt, and you just need crazy stimuli and feedback all the time. (laughs) One of the things that I personally like about Twitter is that it it is the only form that I'm familiar with where you can get that feedback without first going in front of people. Oh, yeah. They're owed big-time correlation. You know, right, because you know how many star points you got. Exactly. And, you know, we need to remember, Twitter could evaporate tomorrow. There could be The grid could go down and it wouldn't be there, and we'd, we'd real quick figure out what we did before we had it. But uh, <laughs> there would be a painful period of adjustment. But, yeah, there is because— um, You there, would wish that you had focused more on building your email list. <laughs> I know, right? Um, if— uh, but, okay, so there's no substitute for live performance where you can smell the audience and maybe even the performer. And with Twitter, you can write a joke and people can react and, and you can know maybe I should try that on stage. But there is uh, there's a, certainly a correlation between the two, yes. And I will – I tweet probably about five different things, maximum, you know, thematically. And then over time, they'll sort of coalesce into what can be a longer set or story or, you know, suite of jokes or whatever. Was it a struggle for you to get clean and sober after you had that nightmarish incident? To be entirely honest, it was a difficult – process but all that i had to do was not drink you know and i and i sort of got a good you know what was great is the state of california was very kind to me they said you can stay in jail for longer if you didn't like jail you can go to uh, a psychiatric hospital rehab facility for one month and then for three and a half months after that you can live in a halfway house so for four and a half months we're going to take care of you you can pick where it's going to be and um and not take care of you i had to pay for it but uh, they were like uh, they said we wanted to be in charge of where you live and that was great because i got to be with other people who were doing the same thing and wanted to you know some of them wanted to change their tune uh so to speak so that was awesome i had a great time in rehab and i am not kidding i sincerely enjoyed 
enjoyed it. I was with people who I really related to. It felt like summer camp. I mean, there was more crying. I think there was more vomiting. There was more uh, body hair because we were adults. And uh, <laughs> But it was exactly where I should have been. Was it scary? Absolutely. Absolutely. And what was scariest was scarier than jail was about a year after jail realizing, oh, my God, I think I might have made it. I'm alive. My arms work again. You know, I, I'm, I'm employable again. You know, so when that happened, I sort of relaxed for a little bit and my mind utterly collapsed, which I've read and, and talked to other people. And, you know, sometimes people that can happen after they've kind of started to reorganize their lives. So I fell into a depression that was much worse than jail and, uh, and much worse than broken bones. That was truly scary that I really thought I might not make it out of this. I don't know what the roadmap out of this is, you know, because with alcoholism, you know, there's things you can do, you know, they might have heard of that can, can help you out. But with a real, acute, um, you know, with your own essence, your own, you know, the most basic molecular, the most basic neurons firing at their at their deepest neutrino level saying you should kill yourself. That's scary because who's saying that to you? You are, you know, on a level deeper than words. And so that was very terrifying. And uh, I, I remember people saying, here's the deal. They'd like list out for me things that I had done that like weren't abjectly monstrous. And they'd be like, I don't think you should kill yourself, you know. And then so I started going to a psychiatrist and he was like, I don't think you should kill yourself. You know, we'll find out more, you know. But then uh, after, <laughs> after – like, Look, got, I'm not yeah. going to be honest with you. <laughs> I'm, I gotta not, look I'm into not ruling it, it out. I'm a man of science. But the only thing that I did that uh, I think – was really helpful in keeping me alive was I would just I just sort of really tried to step outside myself. I tried to be like I'd list out to be like, have I ever killed anybody? Nope. Have I ever raped anybody? Nope. Have I ever lit a school on fire? Nope. You know, and I was just like, okay, so, you know, like, have I ever held a job? Yes. Have I ever made a person smile? Yes. And I thought objectively, this might be a person who deserves to breathe oxygen for a little while longer. And so I decided, why don't I just put it off? So I'd be like, oh, I'll kill myself tomorrow, you know, and uh, or next week, you know, uh, next week that when I got to the point where like I'll kill myself next week. That was like a huge step forward. So using other people's as sounding boards, you know. So the worst thing, the, your brain definitely says lie motionless under this pile of blankets and coats, um, or kill yourself. And that's the worst idea ever. You need to go out. You need to fake it through life. You need to go out and smell flowers and grass and freshly cut grass and you know whatever. Also, I went on medication. I said psychiatrist a moment ago, but I'll make that clear. I went on medication, which very gradually allowed me to sort of feel the whole spectrum of human emotions again, um, because previously it was just one black one. And uh, then I was able to feel them all, you know, including fear, loneliness, sadness, um, shock, anger, whatever, but also happiness, curiosity, desire, physical hunger. I mean, I didn't eat when I was depressed. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the comedian Rob Delaney, who's been doing stand-up for about a decade, but only broke through after he signed up for a Twitter account. He's self-releasing a new stand-up special called Live at the Bowery Ballroom. You wrote a really great piece on, on your blog and a uh, uh, piece with similar themes for Vice Magazine, for mm -hmm. whom you've written extensively, about this part of your life. Yes. You wrote very eloquently about the physical part of it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, it made me think of how physical your stand-up is and even your Twitter. Mm. But 
the reality of the body part of depression yeah. seemed very important to you to convey. And I found it very affecting to read about. Yeah, I thought that that was really important because um, to add a little, I don't know, maybe levity to the subject, people will send me things now that they've written about depression and not to be like the professor, but there'll be very a lot of spelling errors. There'll be a lot of flowery language and evocative things. And I don't find that useful. I don't find that useful. I thought it was really important for me to express the fact that, like, I'd wake up and the first thing I would do is have terrible diarrhea, you know, uh, or or if I br- when I would brush my teeth, which I still got to do, I would brush my teeth. And the moment the toothbrush touched my tongue, I would throw up and uh, I, I didn't want to eat. I lost weight. It was weird. It felt like a head to toe kind of a, a thrumming, a constant physical pain. Which isn't that weird, I think, when you think about, you know, I mean, the connection of the mind and the body is so intimate. I mean, they're the same thing, right? So so just the the of of depression I really wanted to communicate. I wasn't feeling like, I'm just sad, you know, I just, I don't want to go to that party. You know, it wasn't like that. It was like being crushed um, to the point that things were coming out of my orifices <laughs> that I would have rather had be inside, you know, and um, and that's what it was like. And so I, I thought it was really important to get that out there in the world in a in a very bare bones, nuts and bolts kind of way. Something that it really made vivid for me, both hearing about that physical part of your depression mm-hmm. and hearing about the way that your life was changed and improved uh, by taking medication mm-hmm. in in significant part was that it can be difficult to connect our sense of self with the bag of bones. And those are both really vivid mm-hmm. connections between, you know, what we think of ourselves as this kind of abstract thinky type thing that has, you know what I mean? And those are just, I think it is. I think it's so important, you know. And we ignore, uh, especially in the Western world, the mind-body connection to our peril. You know, um, I uh, I'm a big fan of uh, Gotama the Buddha and all the stuff that he wrote and taught. And for people who couldn't in the beginning, when they when he was trying to teach them meditation, if there were people who were like, I don't get it, you know, one of the things that he would do is he would take them to. Uh, charnel grounds and show them corpses and they would just sit with the corpses and go back and just watch them rot and uh, that was one of his first things that was like remedial meditation for people and uh he didn't do that because he was like a horror aficionado who's like watching bodies rot but he was like you understand this is that's and then tonight we're gonna have a a catch a midnight screening of evil dead too exactly and um you know, but he did that. I mean, he was doing those people a, a kindness by by showing them that this is what's happening. That's going to happen. Life is always changing, and change terrifies us. And uh, then, you know, when you get a little deeper into meditation, you learn about the mind body connection, the breath, you know, and and thought connection and stuff like that. And they're so intertwined. And also, you know, you you also can't have a thought uh, that doesn't produce a physical sensation, you know. And I, I think a lot of people might not know that, but you know, if you are watching um, Mission Impossible Four: Ghost Protocol, terrific movie. It's going to produce some fun little trickly 
prickly feelings on your scalp and maybe in your tummy, you know. And uh, but if you're angry, you're gonna feel heat on your face and your chest, you know. And that's like the most basic, you know, expressions of stuff like that. But you know, they are so connected, and and it's so useful to get to kind of get a hook in that because then you understand that life is change, life is death, you know, the yin and the yang and all that stuff. It's so connected, and we shouldn't fear it, you know. That's the thing because I, you know, love. The opposite of love isn't hate; it's fear. And if we can start with what we've got—our bodies, our breath, what we got right here in front of us—not at some church, not down by the riverbank, but right here where you are, wherever you are right now—start there, and then you can start to access truth. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the comedian Rob Delaney. He won the Comedy Award for funniest person on Twitter, and he has a new stand-up special called Live at the Bowery Ballroom. You discovered something coming out of this horrible car accident and this horrible depression, and that was that what was most important to you career-wise mm-hmm. and artistically was to be a comedian. Yes. So I did that. Did you just wake up one day and you're like, you know what? Cosby. That's what I wanted to do. <laughs> well, you know, I always loved uh, humor. I mean, I read Mag- Mad Magazine as a kid and would, you know, do, perform Saturday Night Live skits for my parents with my little sister and stuff. And uh, so I always loved that stuff. But then when I went to college, I thought, yeah, I want to be an actor, which, uh, you know, is a silly thing to be. And then I, uh, my senior year, I started to go see the UCB. 1998, I started to see the original UCB. The Upright uh, Citizens Brigade. Yeah. Comedy at, group. At, uh, in New York. And uh, the first time I saw them, it was like a baseball bat to the face uh, uh and it was uh i mean it reorganized things inside of my mind that i it was just uh, it was a major watershed moment in my life and so i signed up for classes there but then i immediately booked a part in a national tour of a broadway show right when i graduated so i could never take the classes when i got back from that tour i moved to la and uh when i got to la i was immediately in that big car accident and then once I got better from that, I was like, comedy is it, you know, because it had brought me sort of feelings that I'd never had before or allowed myself to be like, it's okay to want to be that, you know? So yeah, at that point, which is 2002, I said, yeah, comedy is it. There's something almost as viscerally powerful about watching great improvisational comedy, like Mm -hmm. the Upright Citizens Brigade, who are well-known for their long-form improv. Yeah. There's something almost as viscerally powerful about that as there is about telling a joke and having people laugh. Like, there's there's yeah. something about being in the river of it, that even yeah. more than watching a great stand-up performance or watching a great film, because it's happening. Absolutely. You know, and it's really weird, and I'm sure that neurologists or, or something could identify exactly what's happening. But when you see, um, you know, an Ian Roberts and Amy Poehler, a Matt Besser and a Matt Walsh together, the four of them, when you see their intellects almost escape through a hole in the top of their head and co-mingle in the sky because the roof of the place that you're in has opened up and become something exponentially more powerful – and I'm not kidding around with that, with my f- fruity tooty language right now. That's what happens when you watch them work. And they do things. We should explain that they yeah. perform at the Sky Dome. So, <laughs> oh, yeah, does. that's true. Yeah. And, uh, but they do things that they, on, individually they couldn't do. And it's so amazing to see. And then it's also magnified the, the heights that they're able to go to by the presence of an audience in the same physical structure as them. So, watching that happen was a, like a 
spiritual experience for me. Um, so, uh, yeah, that that reorganized all my biscuits. I keep reading you using this phrase describing your Twitter use. And it's, you know, you're able to work full time as a stand-up comic now. And, you know, you, you hosted a television pilot and you've got a lot of good things going on. But when you were looking for work, in interviews and your Twitter was just starting to explode. I kept reading you read this phrase that you you wanted to show people you had a work ethic. True. I thought that was such a funny thing to say, but probably an apt one. Well, that's the secret ingredient, and you know that. I mean, for example, we're uh, are we in a studio right now that you physically built yourself? Um, that's a serious <laughs> question. That's a serious question. I participated in yeah. the building of it. So you know the drill. You get up and you go to work if you don't want to go to work. That's the difference. Inspiration, spare me. You know, I don't forget who said it, but inspiration shows up after you've already sat down and said, I'm getting to going to work. And yeah, I've said many times, you know, I would rather have somebody say I'm not funny than say I'm lazy. Oh, my God. Ultimate fear. Uh, So you've got to work. And believe me, I know a comedy career is bonkers and silly and crazy and all that. But if you don't back it up with the work ethic, you will be swept away in a second, you know, by a a light breeze. So you've got to work and you've got to write and you've got to produce and you've got to figure out new ways of doing things. And you've got to go to your lab or your workshop or whatever the hell. So, yeah, I did. I have said that a lot because I mean it. Well, Rob, I I sure appreciate you taking the time to be on Bullseye. It was great to have you on the show. Thank you very much. Rob Delaney's new stand-up special is called Live at the Bowery Ballroom. You can get it on his website, robdelaney.com, and it only costs five bucks. I mean, what's five bucks, you know? Just send it to Rob. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. And I'm Julie Klausner. Every week on Bullseye, we close with a recommendation from the host, which is usually me. But since you're guest co-hosting this week, Julie, do you want to do the honors? Oh, well, I, yeah, thank you. Yes, I'm happy to. <laughs> Are you aware of Nancy Sinatra? Fine. Are you aware of the television special she starred in during the year 1967, brought to you by RC Cola? Well, you should be because it's wonderful. It's called Movin' with Nancy. Well, here we are. It features a whole bunch of musical vignettes starring Nancy in addition to Lee Hazelwood, who contributed some of the songs and duets with her. Some velvet morning when I'm straight. Sammy Davis Jr., who does a swing-in fashion photographer character, and the whole bit is like that scene in Austin Powers. Dean Martin, who's drunker than ever. Hi there, and whose little girl are you? You wouldn't believe it. Yes, I would. I'm your fairy god-uncle. And Frank Sinatra Sr., who she calls Daddy many times, and not uncreepily. Younger than springtime are you. Here's what you will get in the special. Nancy Sinatra singing Up, Up, and Away in an 
actual hot air balloon with a cadre of very energetic male dancers. Would you like to ride in my beautiful balloon? Nancy and Lee Hazelwood singing Jackson, the Johnny Cash song, with a comedic bent that I'm not sure I care for. I go to Jackson, and that's a natural fact. Nancy wearing all kinds of outfits and a ton of eye makeup. Also, she has a lovely jazz voice, and I really like listening to her sing. And her Twitter is great. She goes on and on about how if Frank were alive, he'd vote for Obama. I don't know about that, but I defer to the yellow-haired one. My personal favorite number in the whole special is Who Will Buy, a number from Oliver the Musical that is foppified by at least 400%. Nancy sings the part that Oliver Twist sings. Then, a bunch of her dancers follow her into an abandoned amusement park, flail around maniacally during what is a straight-up MacArthur Park-worthy instrumental bridge. This is the swingingest version ever of a song from a pretty morose musical that is basically about domestic abuse and a Jewish stereotype who collects orphans the way girls with Etsy accounts collect stuff with owls on it. Who will buy this wonderful morning? Such a sky you never did see. Who will tie it up with a ribbon and put it in a box for me? There'll never be a Please do not walk away from this recommendation thinking your work is done. It has yet to commence. Go on YouTube, type in Movement with Nancy, and watch the special in all four parts. It is wonderful, and it will change you into a happier, better, more groovy person. Or is it groovier? More groovier? Oh, if only Daddy were still alive to set us all straight. That's my outshot. So what am I to do? That's it for Bullseye. The show's produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Julia Smith, our editor Nick White, and our interns are Lindsay Pavlas and Tom Pike. Our interstitial music is provided by Dan Wally. Thanks to Paul Ruest and Noriko Okabe at Argo Studio in New York for engineering help. You can find this show and all past Bullseye shows for free at MaximumFun.org. I think that's about it. See you next week. Bullseye is supported in part by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered online at ask.metafilter.com. Support for this program comes from this station and public radio international stations nationwide and is made possible in part by the PRI Program Fund, whose contributors include the Ford Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. PRI Public Radio International.